This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, is Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan today or not? The White House National Security Council spokesperson, John Kirby, was asked about that visit to Taiwan, and this is what he had to say. The world has seen the United States government be very clear that nothing has changed. Nothing has changed about our one China policy, which is, of course, guided by the Taiwan Relations Act, the three joint U.S. PRC communiques, and the six assurances. We have said... We have repeatedly said that we oppose any unilateral changes to the status quo from either side. We have said that we do not support Taiwan independence, and we have said that we expect cross-strait differences to be resolved by peaceful means. Okay, despite all of that, though, China has voiced displeasure, quite a bit of it, with the idea of the U.S. House Speaker visiting Taiwan. In fact, this visit, if it does happen, means that she's the highest ranking elected U.S. official to visit Taiwan in more than 25 years. Meanwhile, in Taiwan, though, that visit is anticipated. The three largest national newspapers, all citing unidentified sources, say that she will arrive in Taipei today, as a matter of fact. And Beijing is not happy about that. So let's talk about the consequences of this, what all of this means. Joining us now is Akshay Singh, non-resident research fellow at the Council on International Policy. Thank you so much for being with us on this. Thanks for having me on, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. How significant is the potential for this? Uh, the potential for the visit is quite significant in terms of just uh, the the level of uh, someone of Pelosi stature visiting Taiwan. But as you pointed out, it's not unprecedented. Uh, Newt Gingrich visited Taiwan in 1997, but it's a very different China than 1997, very different Asia. So the meaning for having Nancy Pelosi there now is is different as well. And we know that China has expressed displeasure about this. There were threats of even shooting her plane down. What are the chances that China will have, you know, have some kind of risky behavior about this? I mean, it's notoriously difficult to predict the behavior of the Politburo, but my honest sense is that the risk of all-out war from uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit is low. Um, I don't think the Chinese government is prepared to start a shooting war across the Taiwan Strait for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, the Chinese military is actually largely untested. The last time they had an actual conflict with a state, realistically, was Vietnam in the 70s. Uh, and U.S. military, even though it is not as perhaps strength as uh, strong as it was before, and the Chinese military has strengthened since then, um, it's, it's quite a force to be reckoned with. And starting a war across the Taiwan Strait now um, would have really strong repercussions on international markets. The Chinese economy isn't exactly doing that well. Uh, politically speaking, it could be risky for the Chinese government. There's a few very important meetings happening this year. Uh, and I'm not sure the Chinese government would start a conflict unless they 100% knew they could win it without a significant economic or political cost. So in my sense, actual military conflict is low, but there are other things they could do. And they have started doing actually within the last 12 hours. Like what other things? Um, so, you know, they've initially, according to some Taiwanese media, started to restrict Taiwanese imports into the mainland. Uh, economic coercion is quite, you know, a common trait. We saw this happen with Canada with uh, when we arrested uh, Meng Wanzhou, they restricted canola imports. Doing the same with Taiwan, they've done with them in the past as well. Uh, Taiwanese agriculture depends on the Chinese market significantly. 
uh, apparently, um, you know, a Chinese mega tech company called Sina Weibo or Sina rather has been restricting servers in Taiwan as well. Uh, there are quite a few Sino users in Taiwan, not as much as in the mainland, obviously, but pretty significant for a private company to perhaps block users from Taiwan from using their service. And there have been, you know, military drills and buzzing of uh, the ADIS line, those kinds of things happening. So I think you'll continue to see those happening even after potentially Speaker Pelosi leaves with more economic kind of efforts to try and punish Taiwan and raise the cost so that they don't do something like this again or don't extend an invitation like this again. Right. Okay. So let's talk about that then. So what is the benefit or so why would the U.S. do this at this time? There are a couple of things that I think the U.S. could do. Uh, or one of the reasons why they're doing this, first of all, I mean, they have restructured their entire foreign policy in Asia to be focused towards the Indo-Pacific. Um, this is something that, uh, you know, has been going on for a few years now, but uh, they have really shifted their attention to try and build multilateral relations in the region to help essentially counter China's rise to some extent, but to also be more present in the region uh, and to be able to uh, rebuild relations that have kind of festered and, and broken off after a long time. Uh, Taiwan is an important partner in that space, and it's important for the U.S. government to build relations again with Taiwan and to reassure them that they will protect a democracy in the future if there actually is a shooting war. Right, because it does feel like this is, um, was it necessary for the U.S. to do this at this time, knowing that it would provoke China in this way? I think it's a challenge uh, to say whether or not it's a good time. I don't think there's ever really a good time to go visit Taiwan, especially for a very senior stakeholder from the U.S. government. Um, the challenge here is that, you know, Speaker Pelosi is in the region going to other places. Right. Um, and it's a good opportunity for her to do so in a way that actually makes sense. If she just went to Taiwan by herself and just to Taiwan, I think it would be even more problematic. I think the fact that she's going to like Malaysia, Singapore, other countries in the region, it makes it a bit easier to say, hey, we're also visiting Taiwan as part of our commitment. Right. Because I think people get very nervous, actually, with a story like this right now, just given what we've seen happening in Russia and Ukraine and how, you know, for leading up to that, people said, oh, there's no way. There's no way Russia will do that. And then they did. Yeah, I think um, Russia and China, like they're similar in some ways, but also very different. Um, you know, uh, Taiwan is not really like Ukraine in the sense that, yes, there are some parallels um, in the sense that both Russia and uh, China have made claims to Ukraine and Taiwan separately, uh, you know, respect, uh, respectively. But um, the Chinese are not as perhaps uh, willing, in my opinion, to go to a fully all-out armed conflict as much as the Russians are, I think, personally, because a their international economic structure depends to a large extent on the West. They have been trading with the West for a long time. A lot of their exports go to the West. Uh, they develop, they depend on Western technology and exchanging research and science with Western companies as well as Western countries. Um, and, you know, uh, their economic markets depend on the West as well. Russia, to a large extent, was a supplier for the West as opposed to perhaps an economic partner. Um, they have natural resources. They can, you know, they have some a level of self-subsistence uh, when it comes to their economy. Not saying that it's going well for them, despite, you know, given the sanctions. But China is in a different state economically. And my, my personal sense is that um, to start a conflict with the U.S. directly and to perhaps trigger some security relationships which already exist in the Pacific, 
is not necessarily in China or the world's interest. And I think the Chinese leadership knows that, especially given they have some very important political meetings coming up this year. And we might see Xi Jinping stay on for a third, uh, third term, which is not necessarily something we would have expected after Mao's you know, tenure. Uh, so all that said, I do think the situations are different. I think the stakes are different. And I think China has a lot more to suffer from attacking Taiwan than Russia, perhaps, from what we saw in the Ukraine. Right. Well, the world is certainly watching. Actually, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on, Simi. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about the Hockey Canada scandal because it just seems to keep going and going as more and more information comes out. We have been following the testimony, of course. They've been called on the carpet by the House of Commons Heritage Committee. But there is new information this morning as well about the whole situation that started this entire discussion, and that is back in 2018 and what happened at the World Juniors Championship. The woman at the centre of that has spoken out, actually, to the Globe and Mail newspaper. Robin Doolittle is an investigative reporter for the Globe and Mail, also the author of Had It Coming and Crazy Town. And this is her piece in the paper this morning, and she joins us now to talk about it. Robin, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. The story is so extraordinary there, Robin, hearing from the person at the centre of this, uh, you know, now after all this time. Why did she feel the need to talk? Yeah, I mean, you know what's really interesting to me as someone I've, I've spent a lot of time covering these types of cases. Um, EM, that's what we know her by, um, said that the reason she wanted to talk was that she wanted people to know. You know, she never asked for this to become public or to become this this national scandal. Um, you know, this is not a case where where she leaked it to the media or her or her lawyers did, which, which does happen sometimes, right? People want to have this out there. So for her, it, what's been frustrating, I think, is watching the story kind of spiral. And she told me um, it's been hard seeing pieces of the story told uh, and, and not the whole thing. And they have stayed quiet because they didn't want to fan she and her. Uh, they didn't want to fan the flames. One thing that was particularly difficult, they said, to see was this narrative that she, for some reason, did not cooperate with police. Um, and they said that that absolutely is not the case. And, and in the story, detail all the instances in which she was participating with the police from a very early stage back in 2018 and continues to do so today. Um, and, the, and the last big kind of piece of news that she said was that they she did uh, last week last week meet with London Police Service detectives again. Now that they've reopened their investigation, and she also sat for a private polygraph exam. Um, and this was something that they said was important because there has been a, a narrative circulating that maybe she hasn't been totally honest. Um, and that they wanted to just add that additional layer. A polygraph, you know, can't be used in court as proof of someone's credibility, but it's just another piece of information that they thought they wanted to get out there. Okay, and I also found so interesting about your piece, Robin, is that she's saying that she wanted to counter that narrative that she feels that kind of Hockey Canada has been putting out there, some things mm-hmm. about the record that they didn't even correct until her lawyer approached them and said, hey, that's not true. Right. And, it, you know, this, this when, when the story broke in May 26, Hockey Canada put out a statement saying, you know, we're very troubled by this. We were aware of it back in 2018. Uh, now, the person who brought the case forward did not cooperate with police and didn't cooperate with our investigators, which is her right. And we support her. 
And that narrative has been out there. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote a story with, with my colleagues about the fact that the London Police Service has this internal civilian review board that's supposed to look at sexual assault allegations, this frontline advocates. It's, it's this really progressive thing. And when I was talking to them, you know, some of those members told me that it was their understanding uh, that she did not participate in the police investigation. And, and that is not the case. But that is the, the idea that's been out there um, since this story broke. Yeah. And what struck me in your piece, too, is that not only did she participate, she went to the police. She, you know, went to the hospital. She did everything you could ask someone to do in a situation like that, didn't she? Yeah, I think so. I mean, she did, you know, her lawyer said that she did take a couple of days to consider her options. One of the, I think, catalysts for why she decided to speak was a couple of weeks ago, some lawyers uh, representing some of the players presented to the Globe um, a series of text messages between EM and one of the players, as well as videos that were shot the night of the alleged incident. And in the videos, she can be seen there, you know, a couple seconds long, six seconds, and then 12 seconds. She's saying, yes, this is consensual. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we can talk about that in a minute because there's a lot to unpack there. But in the text messages, it's this uh, it's one of the players telling her, did you go to police? Like, you need to make this go away. You said it was, you know, you said you were enjoying it. And, and in that response, she says to the player, you know, I was okay with you. It was the others. Um, Cause she wasn't, she says in her statement of claim that she wasn't expecting the others. They kind of showed up after she'd had this consensual encounter with one player. And so again, we have that narrative out there that um, she was, she, she told police she didn't want to cooperate with them. And, and yeah. that wasn't true. Not true at all. And also, you talked about those text messages. What I find so fascinating about that, Robin, is that that seemed to backfire almost when all that information was released because yeah. people got very angry about that. I think it was really interesting. The lawyers presented it to the Globe as, you know, look, here is here is evidence that she consented, that she was not intimidated. Because she said in her statement of claim that, you know, she's in this hotel room, there's around eight players, that she was you know, filled with terror that she tried to leave, that she was crying at times, um, but they kind of manipulated and directed her um, to stay and uh, that she was directed to make this video. And the the lawyers are saying, like, look, this video, because she, you know, she appears enthusiastic in the video, that this is a, this is sign that she was consensual. So, um, you know, that was their motive in putting it out. But when you actually kind of step back and think it, uh, think about it, and, and the lawyer actually told me this, and it's in the piece today, he says, what, you know, in my view, what struck me is, why are you taking a video, I'm paraphrasing him, but if you, if you don't have concerns a, yeah, about exactly. an event that's consensual, why are you documenting this after the fact? So spoke to that as well. Now, I will say these videos, you know, are, are, uh, a piece of information in this, right? So as, as a legal sense, they're not proof of consent because in Canada you have to give consent at the time of sexual contact, not before or after. Um, but the defense, uh, uh, or, or, but lawyers for the accused could say um, that this is, this is evidence that, that, their, that their clients believed she was consenting and, and that this could be used as a, an honest mistaken defense. But she's, you know, the idea is here was she's scared, but she's saying that to get out of the room. Right. How does she feel, Robin, about the way this story has now kind of exploded into the public consciousness? Yeah, the one really powerful thing she said, she just feels really exposed and vulnerable. Like, again, just to, to come back to, this is not a case where a, 
a, a, you know, a victim has, has gone to the media and said, I want this story told. This was someone who went through something, who pursued, you know, asked police to pursue charges after seven months. They, they were not, it, 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 uh, the, the police told her this wasn't going to happen. And then took three years and um, was still kind of in pain about, about uh, what she says she experienced and pursued this litigation. What was really interesting is um, they filed their statement of claim on April 20, and a month later it was settled. Like, that is very fast. There was no kind of back behind the scenes back channeling happening before that. So in, in her mind, you know, she, she got this settlement and she was ready to move on with this. And, you know, against her wishes, this has spiraled into this, you know, we're having federal hearings. We have an investigation from the NHL, from Hockey Canada. The London police have reinvestigated this. We've got Hockey Canada officials being dragged in front of uh, Parliament Hill twice. We've got sports millions in funding frozen. It's sponsors pulling out. Like all of this was not what she wanted. Oh, boy. All right, Robin, thank you so much for talking about that story this morning. It's a really important one. Thank you for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about wildfire season because it really does seem like it is fully underway now. We're hearing about multiple new fires in several parts of the province. We know that this Karameas fire is causing a lot of problems, so let's get an update on what's happening. Joining us now is Jane Strong, Information Officer for the BC Wildfire Service. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thank you for having me. What would you say is the biggest fire of concern right now? I think the most concerning fire right now is the Karameos Creek wildfire. It's our second wildfire of note of the season, and it's been very active. So this weekend, we were able to get in the air and get a more accurate map on it. So we're estimating it at 2,700 hectares, which is a big jump from the 440 hectares it was pegged at just a couple of days ago. Ooh, okay. And so is that under control? Like, how is that being fought? Yeah, that fire is still classified as out of control. It's burning quite, has burned quite aggressively for a few days, uh, but we do have quite a few resources on it. We have 144 firefighters, nine helicopters, and then they're supported by heavy equipment where they're able to get in, as well as structure protection. So think of the fire department that would come to your house if you call 911. We bring them out and they put things like sprinklers and hoses on homes to protect them when they're threatened by a wildfire. Okay, so that one sounds like a lot of work there. What about evacuations, Jean? Where are we at with those? Mm-hmm. The regional district of Okanagan Similkameen continues to update evacuation alerts and orders for areas affected by the Caraminos Creek fire, including Apex Resort uh, yesterday. And then yesterday, we also saw an evacuation alert go in for an area kind of in the Lac du Bois Park in Kamloops for the Watching Creek wildfire. But the best bet for people for that information is to really stay connected with their local government, be it a regional district or a city or, or a First Nation. Okay, so over the weekend, we had a lot of hot, dry weather. Jean, how did that impact the situation? Did we see more fires get started? Yeah, absolutely. We anticipated this weekend would be busy. Uh, We had hot, dry weather leading up to it and through it, and also quite a bit of lightning across the province. So in the last seven days, we saw 124 new fires start. But I think what's important to note there is that 80% of those are now being held out or under control. So it speaks to a few things. Uh, Our preparedness, given that we anticipated this going into the weekend, uh, the help of the public to report wildfires as quickly as they have. And also, and I think most importantly, the really hard work of our crews, both on the ground and, and in the air and in offices around the province over the weekend. 
Gina, is this where we normally are for this time of year? I know we had a slow start to the season, didn't we? Yeah, we absolutely did. We're still significantly uh, seeing significantly less activity than we have last seen last year or even our 10-year average. So to date, we've seen 486 fires. To this date last year, we had surpassed 1,300 fires. Or to date this year, we've burned 22,000 hectares. And to compare it, last year we had just passed 556,000 hectares burned. So so it's definitely significantly less uh, in amount of fires and also the impact in hectares that have been burned. Right, but obviously still a huge concern out there. Was it the lightning strikes that caused all these problems the last couple of days? Yeah, the majority of the fires over the weekend were caused by lightning strikes. Uh, in the Kamloops area, we had a storm roll through Friday morning and then into Saturday afternoon, and we saw nearly 4,000 lightning strikes uh, just from that storm. Then we saw more kind of in the lower uh, Prince George Fire Center area and in the Caribou yesterday. Luckily, those ones came with quite a bit of rain, but we did still see some new starts from them that we're responding to as well. Okay, so what is the forecast like then for the next couple of days? Any any breaks coming? Yeah, the forecast is where I have some good news. Uh, we are expecting that in the south, temperatures will start to shed a few degrees over the next few days. And that's going to give our crews a really good opportunity to have some really good working time on that fire where the weather is going to be on their side. Well, Jane, that was um, fascinating. Thank you so much for bringing us up to date. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, keep your eye out for these because this week, more than 30 new murals are being unveiled in eight different neighborhoods right across the city of Vancouver. Now, this is part of the annual mural festival. So let's learn all about this. We are talking murals that are painted by 50 artists. There's a piece that honors the work of Rosemary Brown. There's all sorts of great reasons to check this out. So joining us now is Andrea Curtis, the executive director of Van Mural Fest. Andrea, thank you for being here. Good morning. My pleasure. This must be very exciting to be able to do this, right? Because of after the last couple of years of COVID. Well, you know, we've been fairly fortunate in the fact that murals have always been something we were able to do safely, distance, and still bring something to brighten our city while we were going through those really tough two years. What we weren't able to do, though, was actually have celebrations in in the scale that we like to and invite people to come and celebrate with us, learn and and walk around on tours, etc. And so we're really excited to be adding that back into our festival this year. Okay, so tell me about some of the highlights. Well, the, it's 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 a it's always tough to choose because we are all the way down in the River District, Marple, right across to the North Shore. You're going to see over 30 new murals all over the the city, um, and like I said, on the North Shore. But some of the biggest highlights this year, we've got the city center. Um, formerly motel, now we're calling it the City Center Arnest Lodge, right on Mount uh, Main Street, Mount Pleasant. We've completely transformed what used to be a motel into 75 units of artist space. And that's our hub this year. That's where we're going to be hosting events every day, weekdays, 9 until, or sorry, 5 until 9.30, and then all day on the weekend. So people can come down for free events and programming all week long, anytime. And then, of course, there's murals um, in downtown, like you said, Rosemary Brown Lane, where we're brightening the lanes, adding color, and telling the story of historic figures. And then right on 
uh, over into the North Shore uh, on the traditional Squamish territories. We're working with um, a group of artists, including Chief Janice George, Buddy George, Angela George, and led by Deborah Sparrow with Blanketing the City Project right on the um, on the pier location. You'll be able to see it from the water. So there's a lot going on this year. It sure sounds like it. How do you decide where the murals are going to go? Like, how, What's that process like? You know, it's actually a year-long process and sometimes even longer because the walls obviously don't belong to us. So there's a lot of, um, you know, whether it's developers or municipalities, just private building owners that we work with. We go knock on their doors and they come and knock on ours and they say, hey, I've got a wall space. And then we we work to negotiate something that's going to be um, applicable for the neighborhood, something that's going to please the, the owners. And then always making sure that we're staying true to the artist's vision too and and making sure that we can hold on to the integrity of the artist's work so we really get unique stuff everywhere and so months of negotiating uh and and draft drawing and we bring on um guest curators every year to help us with that process and so how could so people are just encouraged to go and check these out like to find see the list and just go wander through them because i think everybody loves a good mural Oh, totally. And the best way to do that is by downloading our mobile app and you can find all of the murals on a map. And so you can uh, create your own little routes. If uh, a guided tour is more your style, we have tours in just about every single neighborhood. That's 10 guided tours in different neighborhoods across the city. And so there's multiple ways to go and see those murals, whether you want somebody to help you with the history of them or whether you want to just discover them yourself. Andrew, what do you think a, a good mural does to a neighborhood? You know, that's actually been one of the most fascinating things that I've been discovering with my with the team since 2016. At first, we were really excited to just showcase the creative talent that lives in Vancouver. You know, we have the highest number of working artists per capita out of any city in this country. And so it's really easy to find people and wear our art on the outside. But we've been experimenting more with placemaking this year and trying to create something that feels immersive even, you know, and really goes to show what we can do with, you know, unimaginative public spaces and drab parking lots by giving them just a coat of paint. And so hopefully when we get to do this with, with a coat of paint, uh, working with the artists, it also inspires the, um, the ideas of city planners, developers, and we're starting to work more and more with these folks in, in, in the early stages in planning new areas, integrating art, integrating community, and really being creative and pushing the limits there a little bit. Well, thank you so much for telling us about it, Andrea. And one more time, where can people find more information? Head on over to vanmuralfest.ca or just go to your app store and download the Vancouver Mural Festival app. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great week. This is Mornings with Simi. We had a great conversation with Rob Shaw this morning about politics and protests particularly in this case, environmental protesters. They want to see some kind of political change and decisions made, but increasingly there is no political benefit to having a political party kind of associated with that protest. We saw this and are seeing this with the Save Old Growth protesters. We're just hearing about them this morning, right? It's in Stanley Park where they're protesting there and you're they're blocking traffic. Now we have these Tire Extinguishers of Victoria group. They're targeting SUVs. Dozens of them have had their tires deflated. And I know the question that we all ask is, well, what is the political point to that? What political party would support this kind of action, kind of see that and go, yes, we can get behind that? 
if they're not going to, then what is the point of that political action or that protest action? Let's talk about that this morning. Joining us now is Andrew Weaver, former BC Green Party leader. Thank you for being here. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. What did you think when you heard about these tire extinguishers of Victoria? Well, given that I knew somebody who owned the SUV and had their tires uh, deflated, I was quite disappointed that this is the, the, the form of climate action that's sort of popping up these days. Uh, it, I'm not sure what the end goal is. I mean, this is what, where the political naivety comes in. What's the end goal? You know, often people read some of the history books about, uh, you know, uh, social justice activism in the 1960s and 70s and perhaps even the 80s. And then they try to apply some of the same techniques uh, to today, but they don't realize that today we have the Internet, which is quite different. And so uh, people become aware for all the wrong reasons. And, and what we're seeing now is people, and it's, it's my concern, is the, the middle-of-the-road folk, the people who ultimately um, elect politicians, be, uh, were beginning to start to attribute climate activism to radicalism. And, and when you do that, there's a, you, you, you're less likely to want to be involved with it, not only politicians, but the general public. Right. So you, do you feel there's like a misperception here or a misunderstanding? Because I'm sure that back in the day, and I do remember, like, say, the Clackwatt Sound protesters, yeah, yeah. That, that, you know, a lot of people were opposed to that, regular British Columbians, but over time they changed their mind. Do you right. think that's different this time? Uh, I think it's, there, it's on steroids this time, because back in the Clackwatt Sound days, of course, we didn't have the, the, the social media left, right, and center. I mean, obviously, the, the academic community was using email back then, but, but it was nothing like the way it is now, where you basically have Twitter, Facebook, uh, viral videos. It's, it, it can change, public opinion can change so much faster, and you have to be so much more careful and so much more strategic if you want to do things. With that said, I, mean, I, I, I do understand the grief the desperation that many of these folk are feeling because for so long, so many people did so little on climate change. And then there's a new generation of, of youth coming up. And, and now they're, they, instead of like the methodical, let's just decarbonize in time, there, there's a, a perception that we have to do it overnight. And that leads to kind of actions like this. So, Andrew, then how does a political party balance that? For instance, how does a party like the Green Party, right, which is closely associated to protests and activism and talking about the environment and doing all that, how do you, how do they reconcile that? Well, well, first off, the Green Party under my leadership was not closely associated with activism because I, uh, activism ac- and activists, in my view, are, are critical stakeholders in any public engagement process. They're often critical in raising awareness, uh, pointing out issues, putting on pressure, etc. The problem is they're one, but one stakeholder. And so you cannot ever, as a political party, say, I represent you, because as soon as you say that, then you, rep- you don't represent others. And in our democratic systems, we're not electing political parties. We're not electing activists. We're representing people to represent us. And that's the difficulty. Is you, and it's particularly tough. And this is one of the reasons why we see some of the most you know, uh, radical stuff in, 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 uh, in North America or in, say, uh, to a less, much lesser extent, the UK, is we have first-past-the-post systems here, which are ab- not conducive to consensus building and moving forward, building on what the previous people did. It's, it's much more conducive to pendulum politics. And so the double danger of what's going on with some of these activists uh, is that they don't realize is that they, and it's one of the reasons why I actually had praised the old growth group for stepping back, at least on Vancouver Island, and pointing out that now their focus is going to be on education. Um, What's going to happen if all you do is now demonize the government in power in British Columbia and the government in power federally? Okay, great. We're going to end up with Pierre Polyev federally and, and Mr. Falcon provincially. Now, to what extent to the environmental community I say to this? How is that going to advance your goals? 
We didn't, you weren't there in the uh, en masse pushing people for proportional representation, as far as I could tell. It didn't pass, and so we have to work within the system we have. And so what we need is people to help. I mean, the, the old growth has already been won in British Columbia. Like the government has already put a moratorium on it. Now it's important, rather than saying what you don't want, to help government, to help the politicians, to help the indigenous communities like the Pachidot Nation who've been front and center of this, help them by actually offering solutions. Because, you know, same with climate change. You don't need to convince the public now. The public is there. Greta Thunberg was the master of that. What we need is to help those deliver what they've promised to do. And that is a different form of activism. It's kind of a pragmatic activism. Get involved to put solutions forward. It's not the shout at the clouds activism, which I think on many of these cases is an expression of frustration and desperation as opposed to a means to advance solutions. That's interesting, though. So you feel that there is a almost like an opposite effect that happens here, like a a political backlash that happens that if you do this, then people end up voting differently and counterproductively to what you're trying to raise the point of. It it leads, given today's lightning speed of information travel, it leads to the polarization of society into the one, I support this an awful lot, and I'm going to activism and protest this, and the inverse of that. You just have to look at the Freedom Convoy, or in the States at QAnon. So you get, I mean, I have a much more disparaging comment. I like to say it's revenge of the trailer park boys. What happens is as you start to push harder and harder on issues in a more and more extreme way, and everyone's becoming aware of it, you get people who get really angry, just like you, the opposite, and now you get a polarization of society, and nobody wins when that happens. So, like, all of these, we, we, uh, the activist community have been absolutely critical over the years in, in ensuring that governments and, and, and uh, were talking about climate, advancing solutions. But the truth be told, in BC and Canada, we have two of the most uh, incredible uh, climate plans in the world. I know that it's not perfect. Perfection often, more often than not, gets in the way of progress, but it, they're definitely good. And what we should be doing is recognizing that things like federally, we started to see message testing by the environment minister, for heaven's sake, about the potential of giving the oil and gas sector in Alberta extended time to actually meet their emissions targets. These are the kind of things when you start to see governments message testing, kind of not doing what they said they're going to do. This is where we need the pressure to ensure that they continue to deliver. Not because the more we start to see people screaming at the trees and throwing up their hands, uh, the more people say, oh, I'm fed up with this. Okay, yeah, you need some more time to figure this out. Right, so like, then why do these groups proliferate then? If that it, Clearly, you know, the opposite reaction is happening. The Sable Gulf protesters kind of saw that with their bridge protests, and yet they continue on. I think right now, globally, if we look around, <laughs> there's a lot of people out there who are feeling a bit despondent, have climate anxiety, see the state of the world, war in Russia pandemic blazing afar and wide uh there's a lot of frustration and anger and um some people need they need a channel in meant for many people i people a channeling for that angry is uh surrounding yourselves with people with like-minded uh, anxiety and anger and, and seeking means and ways to actually alleviate that and one of that is is, is core activism and you're making a difference but there's other ways of doing it i would argue and that is to actually you know help people help themselves not necessarily through blocking roads um, but rather, but perhaps you might be handing out pamphlets, pointing out, or you might be, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, uh, this is right. not my, but I know the solutions, I'm, that my, my expertise is not in kind of social uh, but, activism. But it feels like there's like a whole group of people that believe that there's that adage of there's no such thing as bad publicity. 
Um, <laughs> right? Like they, they don't seem to be bothered by the negative reaction because they think, oh, this is fine. We're getting attention. I think part of the problem with that old narrative is it's an old narrative in the context of mainstream media, which was television, radio, magazines, and newspaper. We have the internet now. So you don't get to control, you, you, you're not able to kind of stage the media presence you want. You're not able to kind of put out your communication lines and your story and back it because you just got somebody with a cell phone beside you filming the truth and not what you're trying to, and so it, 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 it doesn't work like that anymore. I mean, uh, yeah. the Ferry Creek protests, we saw some very odd behavior, not, not coming through the traditional channels, but from people's cell phones. And, and, and then you throw that on the Internet, it's viral. So it's, it's, I don't think that that works anymore. I mean, I really don't. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it this morning. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.